Hi, I'm Adam Murray. Subtle Disruptors is about pondering two questions. What does it mean to live well in this moment, given the context within which we find ourselves? And how can we shape the world we live in so that it becomes closer to the one we want to inhabit? I do this by talking with people who you probably haven't heard of, but who I think are embodying a fascinating response to these two questions and doing it in a way that involves subtle changes all of us can make. I want you and I to get as much as possible out of these stories and to feel encouraged, connected and resolute in our own quests of subtle disruption. This week, I'm talking with Samuel Alexander. Here's a little bit from Samuel. To think that those seven and a half or nine or 11 billion people could live at Western-style consumption practices is a fantasy, a dangerous fantasy. There's no that way that we could decouple our economic activity from environmental impact that significantly. It would require a dematerialization of our consumption that is simply uh, implausible. So if that's the case, if we truly want to live in a world where seven and a half billion people are able to flourish without degrading our ecosystems, then we need to rethink our conception of the good life. At the moment, it's a, unfortunately, a, but understandably, a high consumption conception of the good life. I had such a relaxed, encompassing and warm chat with Samuel. But before I tell you about it, here is a quick word from our sponsor for this week. A brand new product to market, Roaming Company produced the highest quality fresh mints you can find and through a connection to local artists have created an entirely different mint experience. Available only in select coffee shops, partner locations and online. Learn more at roamingco.com and share their journey by following Roaming Co on Instagram. Among the many things that make up Samuel Alexander, being an academic, a writer, an activist, founder of an eco-village, father and partner of some of them, the impression of him that lingered most after our conversation, though, was his empathy for our planet and his fellow inhabitants, his willingness to challenge what it means to flourish as a human, and the alignment of what he talks and writes about with the way he lives. Thanks for joining me, and I hope you enjoy listening to Samuel Alexander on the subtle disruption of what it means to flourish. Ready to go? Mm-hmm. Yeah, all right. Yes, Sam, it's really cool to be sitting on or sitting here. I always ask, a guest to describe where we are actually sitting and why you've chosen this place for our conversation. We're sitting in the backyard of my Coburg urban homestead, having a cup of lemon verbena and mint tea and a beautiful Melbourne autumn day. Uh, I guess I just instinctively chose this place when you asked where to have this interview. Um, I guess it links to my conception of good economy. Aristotle defined economics in terms of good household management. And when I think of the household in contemporary society, I worry that it's turned too much into a place of consumption Mm. and it's no longer a place of production. And in our household over the recent 10 years or so, we've been trying to turn our household into more of a place of consumption, uh, production, yeah. um, through primarily food production, but, but also other forms of create, creative activity. Um, and, you know, my partner sews all of her clothes, some of my clothes, some yeah. of our son's clothes. Yeah. And um, I guess it also points to the, I guess, theory of change that I have in terms of the importance of grassroots activity. Mm. The, 
the household is a place where we have greatest agency. Like, I don't have any say really. Well, I don't have any say about what Donald Trump is doing. I'm a New Zealander living in Australia who doesn't vote, so I don't feel as if I have much input into the Australian government. Yeah. And yet, to think that political contributions begin and end at, at the ballot box is a very limited conception of yeah. democracy, a very limited conception of political participation. So I conceive of the household, personal activity, home production as one mode of contributing to self-governance in a way. And that isn't to say that personal action alone is going to solve some of the deep overlapping crises that we're facing, but it contributes to a cultural shift in a way that hopefully filters up and has systemic impacts. Yeah. So to get heavy immediately. I like it. <laughs> I do want to talk about, I want to get into some of the, what you think may be some of the emergent properties of a, a grass move, grassroots movement like that as well, but let's backpedal a little bit. And I just wanted to talk about even showing up here. I, um, I saw number, I see your number three on this street, mm -hmm. I think. And um, I think I showed up at number, I was looking at the numbers, but anyway, I thought, oh, I just immediately presumed which way the, the numbers of the houses went. And mm -hmm. I was going to the house that's two doors up. This doesn't quite look right. This like looks too neat and tidy and sterile. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd seen the front of your house out of the corner Careful of my eye. I was kind of like, that kind of looks a bit more like a place where I think Sam might live. And it's just, and it's more like your house is more um, natural looking, I suppose. Like it's, it's not a manicured suburban <laughs> house in any way. It's got... Um, plants, like I'm just describing what I'm looking at now in the backyard, there's grapes growing overhead, there's um, chooks and a duck that I can't see in the back there, there's vegetables uh, growing everywhere, there's a bike and it, it feels a little bit, a little bit jungle-like, it's cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's interesting, the kind of the aesthetics of, I guess, sustainable practice, like if you walk past our front yard or even our backyard at the moment and see that it's in that phase between growing seasons, yeah. you know, you see tomato plants that have been highly prolific but are now on their way out. And I guess to some people, they would look at that and just see almost a, a messy dying garden. And yet from a different perspective, you see, you know, the, the cycles of life, yeah. the seasons changing. You see plants that have fed you and your family for months and by no means does that strike me as ugly but I can see why if people see it as messy or you know unkempt I yeah. guess that's the difference between the kind of mainstream consumerist aesthetic that likes the lawn and the mm. and the producer who's prepared to have the dying plants because that's the cycle of nature yeah there's I mean, interesting what you're saying about lawn and order and that kind of thing. I was reading, um, is it Yuval Noah Harari's book, um, Homo Deus? And in that, he sort of starts talking about the lawn and the origins of the lawn and where it actually came from and aristocracy and, you know, well before lawnmowers. And the only way you could have a lawn was if you had hundreds of servants, essentially, to maintain that for you. And it was a sign of power and prestige. Um, and how that's sort of translated 
all the way down now to, I guess, you know, even things like sporting fields, but suburban nature strips and how that's a sign of how well you're, how good your lawn is, is an indication of kind of how well you are <laughs> in a way. But what that order also, it distances ourselves from uh, the reality of the ecosystem we live in, in a way, which is often, well, I use messy as a very a loaded term, but it's, it doesn't have that same ordered look mm. um, in comparison. Mm. And maybe what we're trying to, I don't know, there seems to be a bit of a shielding that we're trying to do in doing that, in putting a, a distance between ourselves and nature, and I guess mm. even in concrete and asphalt mm. and, and those mm. kind of things. I guess it's an attempt to dominate, to control. Yeah. In a way that isn't working out so well. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, the notion of the Anthropocene, you know, the new geological era that geologists are now saying is the first time we can talk of a geological era caused by humans. Yeah. And, you know, normally geological er eras are measured in millions of years. They talk of the Anthropocene being, you know, 300 years old. Really? It's humans, for the first time, our actions have actually created a new geological era. And it's an attempt to, through our attempt to control everything and dominate everything, and there's this perverse interpretation of the Anthropocene era um, as humans essentially becoming gods. That, you know, just as we have, say, devastated the planet, just as we're destabilizing the cl climate, this shows our immense power. And just as we've used it for, for bad, we can <laughs> have used this power and sort of, you know, ge geoengineering being the perhaps worrying example of this type of techno-optimism going astray, saying, well, any problem we cr create through our... Um, reckless economic activity we can solve through our ingenuity. Yeah. And theoretically interesting, in practice it's not working out so well. That trying to solve it through our ingenuity, is that what you mean? That's not working out so well or the way we're going about things now? Well, both. Like The idea that technology will save us is a very worrying assumption. It, and it, it's understandable why that assumption influences governments and culture because to reduce our environmental impacts we have various options. One, reduce population, very hard to do, very unpopular. Two, reduce affluence, very hard to do, very unpopular. Change our lifestyles and behaviour, again difficult, but there's this mysterious win-win through technological advance that we can keep our lifestyles but dematerialise them and solve our problems through technology without therefore needing to change our ways of living. And I think it's a very dangerous way to approach this. You know, in my view, all of our problems could be solved with existing technologies. We don't need new technologies. Yeah. That's not our problem. Yeah. Our problem is what we're doing with these technologies. Like technology is a tool. It's a means to an end. And just like a, a knife is a means to an end. It can be used for good or for ill. You can cut tomatoes or stab somebody. Mm. Fire is neither good nor bad in itself. It depends on how we use it. It can burn your house down or it can warm you in the winter. So all of our technologies are these tools and to think that technology alone will resolve the ecological overshoot that we find ourselves in worries me. Yeah. And I think it's something that needs to be challenged and that
it's more a, a cultural problem, I think, a values issue yeah. rather than a lack of technology. Yeah, I get what you're saying. And I mean, how, maybe you've touched on it already, but how, how do you see that changing, that, that understanding of values and that the types of values that we have that could change the way we use technology to be more, less about more and more and more and more about getting in tune with <laughs> this system that we've actually mm. evolved from mm. and emerged in. Yeah. So again, it's, I think to think of technologies as tools and you use tools to achieve a goal. And at the moment we seem to be unwilling to rethink the goal. And the goal seems to be globalise affluence Mm. and do that in a sustainable way. Mm. And it seems to me that there's absolutely no way, it would be ecologically catastrophic if we globalised affluence. The, there are 7.5 billion people on the planet, and by 2050 they think there's going to be 9 billion people, 9.5 billion people, and the latest UN trends suggest that we're going to be reaching 11 billion by the end of the century without a peak in sight. Now, to think that those seven and a half or nine or 11 billion people could live at Western-style consumption practices is a fantasy, a dangerous fantasy. There's no that way that we could decouple our economic activity from environmental impact that significantly. It would require a dematerialization of our consumption that is simply uh, implausible. So if that's the case, if we truly want to live in a world where seven and a half billion people are able to flourish without degrading our ecosystems, then we need to rethink our conception of the good life. And at the moment, it's a, unfortunately, a, but understandably, a high consumption conception of the good life. You know, there's a reason why people try to come to Australia or the US. You know, we, it is better to live in these nations than in nations that suffer from extreme destitution. You know, you cannot flourish when you're desperately hungry. You cannot flourish when you don't have a roof over your head or can't afford basic medical care. So there's yeah. this need to achieve a certain level of material well-being to, to, to flourish. Mm. But <clears throat> at the moment, it seems to me uh, the, the there is this attempt to globalise affluence. And it's if we were able to reimagine the good life, we would discover very quickly that we already have the ability, the technological ability to globalise sufficiency in a way that doesn't undermine the ecosystems that we require, depend on to flourish. Yeah. You mean material sufficiency when yeah. you're talking about that? And, you know, what... You've said the word flourish a few times. I'm curious about what you, how you understand that word or what, what flourishing with material sufficiency would look like. Good question. Incredibly difficult and complex question because um, I think one of the perhaps gaps in, in the environmental movement at the moment has been a failure to envision in sufficient detail what a truly sustainable world would look like. There's been an, a lot of critique of the existing growth economy and the consumer culture, and I think that's relatively well understood, even if it's not acted upon. Um, there's a lot of talk of 
transition, but the very notion of transition seems to imply a, a, a an endpoint, end a direction, which transition, where to? Yeah. So in order to transition, you there's a prior question, where to? Because that gives us our direction. And I think there's been too little attention dedicated to envisioning what a truly one planet existence would look like. And that would take a longer conversation, a longer time than we have available to try to unpack what that would look like. But the main point is that if we begin with the premise or if we begin by framing it as how can seven and a half billion people live well on our planet, and if we recognize that we're already in gross ecological overshoot, if we already recognize that there are billions of people in the world who are under-consuming by any humane level, if we also know that population is growing, that calls radically into question the legitimacy of the high-consumption ways of living that we have become accustomed to in Australia and the rest of the Western world, which is currently being emulated by the rest of the world or trying to mimic. Um, so if we were to transition to a one-planet way of life, that implies, in my view, a significant contraction of our resource and energy demands in a way that cannot be achieved purely through efficiency gains and technological advance. So <clears throat> to, to kind of summarise a, a far more complex discussion, I think sufficiency, in a nutshell, implies energy and significant energy and resource demands in a way that is probably certainly inconsistent with maintaining consumer lifestyles as we know it today. So it's a far more humble material living standard, mm. but sufficient. And it shouldn't be conceived of as hardship or sacrifice, but a redirecting our energies away from the limitless pursuit of stuff and redirecting it toward non-materialistic sources of meaning and well-being. Mm. So when I talk of flourishing, you can pursue flourishing in materialistic ways through the bigger house and the nicer car and the new carpet and the renovated kitchen and the trips to Bali and the exotic foods and so on and so forth. And to some extent, that might be, in some people's view, a conception of the good life. And I think it is very influential in our culture. Yeah. But to recognise that from a sustainability point of view, that's deeply problematic should challenge us to try to reimagine a different form of flourishing that is less material and energy demanding in ways that don't by any means mean a reduction in our quality of life. In fact, I'm convinced that there are better ways to live than what we are shown in adverts and on TV. It's a, it is understandable why that conception of the good life has arisen in our culture throughout history humans have tended to have been materially insecure. So the pursuit of more in those circumstances, it's understandable. But we have, haven't yet seemed to process the fact that we now seem to have not just enough, but more than enough, and yet we pursue more. When, and when more fails to satisfy us, we think it's because we don't have enough. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, you know, you can never find happiness in the places where it was never there in the first place. So we need to rethink our pursuit of the good life. Yeah. The other thing I think about is 
the shortness of time that this has been available for us. Like we're, we're kind of talking about a period of maybe 70 years, something like that. Kind of the effluent society. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, um, in, I mean, in the scale of things, that's, uh, <laughs> what is it? It's mm. nothing. Mm. But the impact it's having is obviously immense. Mm. I suppose as a species, uh, if I'm a little bit optimistic about it, we could say, well, let's, we can be a little bit compassionate. Like you say, it's understandable. We can be a bit compassionate with ourselves for having this sort of reaction. Um, but, yeah, I've, I, my definition of flourishing has changed dramatically over the past three years, but it was with some, there was a lot of trepidation about, there was a lot of fear about what I'd have to let go of and what I'd be missing out on in doing that and so many messages coming from so many different sources that it was I was going the wrong way and I took a gap year and just having no income for a period of time was amazing an amazing awakener to what how I actually spent my money because I had to think about each thing that I spent and I know that you've had two experiences that I know of of living a very in a very different way Maybe even here you're doing that as well. But one was when you're in New Zealand and you spent three months in a little little place, mm-hmm. in quite a remote area, mm-hmm. and then living in a shed that you made from mostly reclaimed material mm-hmm. in your friend's house. And I'm interested in what you noticed about your own flourishing in those two times. Like how 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 did your experience of flourishing and understanding of flourishing change? Mm. So specifically with respect to the shed experience, to give your listeners some context, during my doctoral research, I was exposed to the writings of Henry David Thoreau, the famous American environmentalist who, when he was a young man, left his hometown of Concord, Massachusetts, went to live alone in the woods on the shores of Walden Pond, built himself a small shed, grew his own food, um, you know, mended his clothes, wandered through the woods, and wrote this extraordinary book called Walden, in which he presents this scathing critique of the emerging consumer industrial way of life, but also this beautiful poetic defense of simple living. When did he write that, just for context? Uh, He wrote it in the years 1845 to 1847, but it wasn't published until 1854. (coughs) And I read that as as a doctoral student, and it changed my life that was you know when people ask what was the defining influence on your life or your movement away from the mainstream I guess it was the reading of this book and then the rereading and the rereading of it because it's incredibly dense and beautifully dense but it rewards 15 readings you know each time you'll get more from it yeah um which is a warning I guess when people pick it up for the first time it can be very alienating it's so dense yeah. His mind is so great yeah. that uh, he fits so much into a page that you actually almost need to tense your brain and your <laughs> muscles while you're reading it. Because, yeah. um, and uh, as I was reading that, I wondered, well, first of all, he was putting into words emotions, thoughts, feelings that I had sort of experienced at a raw emotional level. Like there was something dissatisfying about the culture that I was being educated into. Mm. And I wasn't quite able to articulate why, 
or what an alternative might look like. And here was this book that I kind of by accident fell upon and he was doing it with an eloquence and a depth that I would could never have achieved. But it, I was somehow sympathizing with every sentence. I was like, yes. And it's incredibly, it's amazing how relevant it is to today. You can read this book written and published in 1854 and there are sentences that you could simply cut and paste and it would be directly relevant to today's world. So he was, wow. he was, he was living at a time at, where industrialization was taking hold of America, and he was at this early stage seeing the risks that, sure, it may have brought benefits, but it also brings many costs, and it's those costs that are often we're blind to. And he very early on said, "Look what we're giving up in order to get." this effluence. So I wanted to almost say, well, Thoreau had this incredible experience trying to explore these ideas in his context. Yeah. What would it look like in, in a city, Melbourne? So in a sort of clumsy sort of way, I built myself a shed in the backyard of my share house that I was living in at the time with um, a friend of mine, we built it over three weekends for 572 bucks. <laughs> I lived in it for two years and it's a circuitous way to return to your question in terms of the question of flourishing. What I sort of discovered through this experience of living so simply was how little I needed to be happy, like surprisingly little, like I spent $6,000 a year in, in total. Lived in a house that I built myself, despite being a, you know, a legal academic. You know, you'd think not too many more impractical people <laughs> in the world than legal <laughs> academics. But here I was, able to build an admittedly dodgy shed, but it kept the rain off my head. And um, the funny thing was that it wasn't long before the share house itself was leaking, like in six different places, and right. the only dry place was the shed. <laughs> yeah, but even I think we're hardier than we th we think we are, and that's another thing I sort of discovered is that, you know, the shed was both as hot or as cold as it was outside. You know, I didn't insulate it, so on a forty degree day it was forty degrees inside, and on a zero degree night it was zero degrees inside. And when you have your mind in order, as I sort of had to do to to survive this experience, you discover that it's fine. <laughs> You know, yeah, like yeah, the nights yeah. were cold, but I wasn't because I had warm blankets and a, and a beanie, mm. you know. So, um, and this isn't to say that this is a solution to the housing problem, but it was a useful experience for me to be pushing the boundaries of what, how simply I could live and to sort of have a sense of sufficiency. And it gives you a sort of a strange confidence knowing that if you ever had to return there, um, if you have the right frame of mind, you'll be okay. Mm. Which, yeah. Yeah. Mm, look at this beautiful bird that's just calling yeah. in on us as Can well. Can I have one of my grapes? <laughs> yeah. It is too. Fermenting it wants a little bit of alcohol. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, yeah. It is surprising how robust we are or what we can actually handle if we have to. Mm. 
And the, the issue of mindfulness, I think, is key. I learned this lesson first from reading the Stoics, the Greek Stoics and the Roman Stoics. And I guess their lesson in a nutshell is that events shouldn't hurt us. Our interpretation of events hurt us, and we are in control of our interpretations. We are in control of the attitudes that we bring to experience if we choose to be in control of it. Often we don't recognize our own control, and by default we'll accept cultural attitudes mm. and think that if we don't have the latest iPod or the flashiest car, we are somehow hard done by it. Um, the Stoics would remind us that we are actually in control of our attitudes. And if we have adopted culture's attitudes, then we can, by self-discipline and self-fashioning, reshape those attitudes. Yeah. And the interesting part of this with respect to our material living standards is that the same material living standard will be experienced very differently depending on the attitudes that we bring to experience. Mm. So the person who has to bike to work, for example, or grow their own fruit, if you feel that you need to, to sort of have the status, so-called, of a car or the status of not having to grow your own food because that's what the, the, poor, the poor need to do, um, then you will find these practices difficult, embarrassing perhaps, a hardship. If you live that very same lifestyle but with a different attitude, you can find that it is the path to a deeper flourishing. And the important point is that we are in control of those attitudes if we take control of those attitudes. And that sort of suggests that, you know, there is this very close connection between mindful practice and a transition to a more just and sustainable world. It's not just about changing yeah. structures yeah. out there. Mm. It's also about changing structures in here. Yeah. And did you, was that something you discovered through the journey of living in a shed or had you done some work before that so that you were, you were ready for that experience? I've, I think I'm, I think when I talk to people about their moments of transition, a lot of people, it hasn't been necessarily an intellectual spark. It's been perhaps walking through the bush and having sort of an epiphany or seeing a sunrise and just being so moved that you need to change your ways. And neither are better or worse, they're just different. For me, I think I've strangely had an unusually intellectual m moment. It's through the reading of Walden in particular, yeah. but also through reading the Greek philosophy. And um, the Stoics I had read prior to this stuff, so I was even back, you know, earlier to my Walden experience. Um, was beginning to think through the importance of self-fashioning, like shaping myself rather than letting culture do it mm, and taking, that, yeah. taking control of that. Um, but yeah. Yeah, and so that had happened in New Zealand, living in, in the shack. That was sort of the start of that journey for you or the Stoics even uh, prior to that? Yeah. Perhaps there or thereabouts, during my master's year, I was supposed to be reading legal theory and was more or less just reading philosophy or yeah. literature. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, yeah. So it's the Stoics. When, when, when people ask me, oh, what are some good philosophy texts to read? Um, I've read 
an indecent amount of philosophy in my time. Um, but when people say, what is the, the best or what have you learned, what has affected your life or influenced your life more than anything else, it's the Stoics. Yeah. Because it's, it's a practical, it's, they draw no distinction between good philosophy and good living. It's the mindful practice of philosophy that is, is what good living means. Um, and it's the Stoics that just express those lessons so powerfully and so usefully. Um, a little shout out to a great philosophy podcast that I'm listening to at the moment, which is called Philosophy This with Stephen West. And he just gives uh, an awesome uh, taste into philosophy through the ages. So um, if anyone's interested, it's, uh, I highly recommend it. But going back to what you said about you were surprised by how little you actually needed to be happy. What were the things that, that started to emerge that did delight you, that did make you happy, that you did have room for in your life with, after taking so much stuff out that you thought, well, that, that you were told you were supposed to have? Hmm. So I essentially didn't buy clothes for those two years. I just mending whatever I had. For the first time, I really engaged with the garden, and um, my partner Helen was instrumental in being my mentor in that respect. She was gardening before I was, and yeah. um, my housemates were into it too. And um, has multiple dividends gardening. You know, you may do it purely to feed yourself. Um, but it has can have health benefits. You know, you're you're in, you're intimately aware of what you're putting in the soil and on your plants or not on your plants, as mm. the case may be. Mm. But there's also far more mysterious, um, reticent to use the word spiritual, but um, psychological benefits that come from a deeper connection with nature. And I don't know if that sounds cliched, but we find ourselves too often indoors, under artificial lights, in cars, disconnected from the sources of our material and spiritual well-being in a way that is not good for us. And it's perhaps the deeper worry is that it's easily missed. We, we, we can be un, very unaware of how disconnected we are and how that affects our psyches for the, for the bad. Yeah. And so this... You know, as I gardened more, yes, I was eating healthier. I adopted a vegetarian diet. Um, I was not having to spend so much money on going to the supermarket because I was growing a significant portion in my own backyard. But there was also this deeper health benefit that came from having my hands in the soil and being more cognizant of the weather and how long has it been since it's rained? And for the first time, um, just looking out the window one day and just just being delighted that it was raining because my <laughs> garden needed it. Yeah. And like, it's not a thought that normally pops into one's head because yeah. rain is an inconvenience, not apparently. Even. Yeah. Um, and But it was quenching my thirst in a funny sort of way as it was watering the garden because we both needed it. We both, I need the food, you know, the garden needs it. Um, so, and there's some fascinating studies about 
the human connection with nature and its effect on our psychology um, in ways that are, are still pretty mysterious. Like there are studies that in, in a big hall of students doing exams, the ones who sit by the windows that can see a tree or the sky do subtly better. Really? Isn't that yeah. fascinating? It is. And there are other things like that. You know, there's a, a psychology condition called nature deficit disorder. Huh. This idea that kids, you know, where once they used to be playing outdoors and mm. <laughs> or all of us really, it's not just kids, yeah. are now so often inside in front of a screen, um, disconnected from, from nature, the wind, the sun on our faces, and we are poorer for it and we're not necessarily aware that this wealth of experience has been taken from us Yeah, because it sort of happened incrementally in a way that, you know, like the frog that doesn't know that it's boiled. Mm. I, yeah, I was telling you before we started recording that I used to live in an apartment, but that apartment didn't have any outdoor space, so it was, there was no balcony or anything like that as well. I had, I had some great natural light, but I've now moved to a bit more of a block of land, and I've been out gardening with my parents for the first time in years, and I remember just spending a whole Saturday, we pruned, we, we dug, we picked plums of a plum tree and we spent about eight hours in the garden that day and it was pretty hard work like but it was joyful work and I just it's the first time I got my hands dirty in a long time and just felt the soil and for the next three days I was I was buzzing I was just feeling so amazing and I'd realized how much I'd missed doing that and how good it was for me. I guess yeah. that's the other layer of health benefit is that gardening is physical work. You're often on your knees or you're digging in the soil or you're climbing a tree to pick the apples or yeah. putting stakes in for this or that. And, you know, again, Australia's got an obesity epidemic. You know, we're not eating well and we're not doing enough exercise. Yeah. And yet we also get, you know, too often people will get into a car and drive to a gym, pay exorbitant fees to then run on a treadmill or these sort of things like there are some we haven't figured it out we've got a lot we're not as smart what is homo sapiens supposed to mean wise human we've got a lot to learn and you know gardening can be central to that transition away from things like you know obesity Um, you know to see it as a not just a source of food production or a connection to nature, but natural activity that is healthy for us. You know, it's physical activity. Like, it is physical. Yeah. Um, but it also, by no means, has to be a, a chore. It's not labor as such. And I think there's also a social component to it in many ways mm. as well. Like, mm. being in the garden with other people and working on a common... A common purposeful thing, uh, you know, it's a great way to bring people that may not work together together, and for conversations just to come up without there being pressure on them to come up hmm. as well. Yeah, yeah. And every gardener will know that there comes a time in the harvest where you find yourself often with more produce of a certain type than can be eaten in the time before it perishes, yeah. and it's a fascinating. It's funny how that dynamic forces you in inverted commas to knock on your neighbor's door and say, I've got yeah. too many zucchinis or I've got too many tomatoes 
yeah. or come over for dinner because we're going we're gonna to cook up some pasta sauce. And you know, on our nature strip, you would have might have seen we've got a two meter square yeah. um, veggie patch, yeah. and all our neighbours know about it. And they every time we see them, they, well, they'll come and talk to us when we're out there working on it and you know they know that it's we treat it as comet property like obviously we eat from it when it's this produce but they know that they're very welcome to come and take some coriander or some basil or some cherry tomatoes and it's again that interesting double dividend or triple dividend you're getting exercise you're being healthy you're connecting with nature you're growing your own food therefore you don't need to buy so much but you're also accidentally engaging with your community in a very natural, unforced, organic way. Yeah. It's all good. <laughs> it's all Grow good. food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when, we, when you first started talking about this place and, and why we're here, one of the things I think you talked about was how you see a way of starting to change, I guess, the current cultural dynamics is through, through the grassroots, like through people living the way you've been describing. Mm. Um, yeah, why do you think that? Why do you think that's mm. the way? Well, it's sort of interesting that me, with my background, has come to that conclusion because, as implied earlier, my background's law. So I've always, my education has invited me to look at the world through a structural lens. Like, I'm very aware mm. of how significant laws, political and economic structures, infrastructure has on our ways of living. And so one's first instinct is to say, if we to move to a better world, we need to fix those structures and there's no easier, more efficient way to change those structures than through top-down governmental action. And that might be true, but then we need to ask ourselves, how does that structural change occur? What drives or motivates our politicians. And I guess that's linked to the disillusionment I and most people have at the moment, um, of progressive bent anyway, in relation to political culture. Like, it's incredibly depressing. You know, Trump is the most egregious example of somebody utterly lacking in integrity now being in this incredible position of power. And... Um, things aren't quite as bad in Australia, but by no means are they progressive. You know, government is currently a force for um, bad, for unsustainability, yeah. for injustice, um, and not the force for sustainability or justice that it could be. And things don't seem very promising from that perspective. So to think through a theory of change um, it's important to recognise that there are there is an undue influence in gov- uh, of money and, and corporate power in in government, and for one reason or another, it would be a complex history to figure out. The people with insight and wisdom and integrity haven't found themselves in po- positions of political power in mm. general. Mm. So, to say, well, how's the change going to come? It's all very well to say. We need systemic change, we need structural change, but it's one thing to recognise that and a different question, well, how does that come about? And that has led me to the view that the driver for change has to be from below. It has to begin 
where we have immediate agency, as I said at the very beginning, and that can be personal, household, community action. So I think that's, we can't just do, do good. I think, I think given this, the, how small the sort of the subcultures are that are demanding the changes that are needed, we, we, we can't just do good. We need to try to maximize our influence. We, and um, that means being very strategic about where we direct our oppositional energies. Um, and there's no one and only answer to that question, what is to be done. But it's an important question strategically to think about and to ask oneself that question in one's own context in relation to one's own energies, skills, resources. So the theory of change is, is basically ho hoping that a new culture will emerge through grassroots action. We start building the new world from within the shell of the old, as the anarchist slogan goes, um, in the hope that as that culture develops and expands, radicalizes and organizes, it will incrementally be able to restructure society. Whether that means influencing parliament more deeply or finding ways that as communities we can actually restructure our, our societies. The ways that you're maximizing your, the ways you're being strategic about, you know, what you've got access to and the context you're in, are they, is it, is it um, within the context of this property or are you doing things outside of that to, to start yeah. to bring about that change as well? It's not just context dependent, but also like time dependent, like different times in life, different times in the, in the world, you will find yourselves with different opportunities. Mm. And um, when I think strategically about how I can maximize my influence, um, I, I, I've tended to realize that there are three main areas in which an activist can direct his or her energies, and that's through one, education or awareness raising, two, resisting the unjust and unsustainable modes of political economy that we find ourselves governed by today, and three, trying to prefigure a post-capitalist, sustainable, just way of life in a way that could perhaps, you know, almost experiment with alternative ways to provide examples, to test different ways of living in a way that could um, draw other people in, create cultural currents. Mm. So in different ways, I've dabbled in those three things. I'm an academic and uh, I write more generally as well. So that's my attempt to educate and raise awareness about some of these issues. I made a documentary last year with a friend, Jordan Osmond. Uh, the documentary is called A Simpler Way, Crisis as Opportunity, in which that was, in a sense, an attempt to distill in a documentary form some of the ideas that I'm writing about academically. And I'm, I'm sadly aware that a lot of people don't read 8,000-word scholarly <laughs> research essays with 200 references. Yeah. Um, you know, more people will watch a documentary. So it was an attempt to, I guess, think strategically about how I invest my energies in it kind of from a communications perspective. Yeah. But the scholarship in the science is important and it can be the foundations for social movements, but it's certainly not enough. It's not just what you say, it's also how you say it. And the documentary was an attempt to be strategically wise and from a communications perspective.
and it's had half a million hits in the first wow. few months online. Yeah. So in that sense, you know, that's a far greater outreach than most academics could ever <laughs> hope to achieve. So, yeah. um, you know, in some way, I hope that there are people asking new questions or thinking more critically about conventional answers to some of these issues through through that. Um, I mentioned the resistance. Um, you know, we need people tying themselves to trees. No joke. We need people stopping the Adani coal mine. Um, I was intimately involved in Occupy in 2011, um, not because I necessarily wanted to, but I felt duty-bound because this was, it was a movement based on noble ideals and important, necessary idea, ideas, you know, and was down there and it was, I was dragged out of city square by a police officer, very roughly, despite having my hands up saying I'm here in peaceful protest and, you know, it was fascinating, you know, and the great, like, it got global attention, but there were sort of 300 of us down there sharing literature on sustainability and indigenous rights and women's rights and the undue influence of corporations and on government and the mayor thought it proper to order in the police and essentially beat us out of city square. Fascinating that the moment an uprising, so to speak, bubbled under the surface, the state bore down upon us. And the third part of the activist strategy as I conceive of it is the, and I think this is perhaps one of the more important is, of them is the prefiguring the alternative, trying to live examples of different ways of living in, in, a, in a way that c could provoke others to a curiosity to also explore. Because um, again, I, I worry that there is a lack of imagination in sustainability movements sometimes. You know, mm. it's all very well to critique the existing system, but we also need to, for a social movement to take off, there needs to be a conception, a desirable understanding of what the alternative world would look like. You can't just give up the existing way. You need to have some sense of where you're moving to and that it's better, yep. you know. And microcosmic examples of better but low-impact ways of living, I think, are one very important way of sparking cultural change and getting more people involved in these necessary movements. Yeah. Can we talk about the, the imagining a new world a little bit more mm -hmm. as well? And I think there's a couple of ways that I understand you've gone about doing that. One is through writing a book, I think, mm -hmm. called... Um, Entropia. Entropia. That's it, yeah. Um, so I'll ask you to talk a bit about that and maybe if you can talk about a uh, more of the practical example of bringing something into being that you might have been involved with mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sure. So motivated by those concerns I've just talked about in terms of being very aware of these deep overlapping crises but not imagining, not myself, being able to imagine what the alternative would look like, given the extent of the overshoot. Because it's when you understand how deeply our global economy is in an ecological overshoot and how many people still really need to have their material living stands, standards lifted to live yeah. a dignified way of life, the amount 
of energy and material resource reduction that we need to move toward in the affluent world is quite um, shocking, alarming, significant. Could you put a Radical. percentage on it? Like, could it be like would it be like twenty percent of what we're doing? At the uh, so take this statistic with a grain of salt. But if in not twenty fifty we have nine and a half billion people, um, the Australian ecological footprint would probably need to be about a tenth. Yeah. So. Wow. That's that ought to make people think that taking shorter showers, flicking the light off, composting, and buying efficient bulbs are all important, necessary things to be doing, but they're insufficient. You know, we cannot tweak the consumer way of life. We cannot tweak consumer capitalism and think that we're going to be doing good. In fact, to the extent that those things satisfy people's sense of contributing, it could arguably be counterproductive. You know, if, if well-meaning people turn the lights off and take shorter showers and think that their role has, you know, their role as change maker has been satisfied, then that's problematic. So the point is that, you know, if we are to try to imagine what a what a flourishing way of life would look like on 10% or 20% of current material energy demands of the Western consumer way of life, we are requiring a fundamental rethink of what good living looks like. And I couldn't find examples, detailed examples of what that might look like, and it frustrated me. Um, so I sat down and, and tried to write it in a fictionalized form. I'm reticent to call it a novel because it's less a story, although there are elements of narrative and, to it, but it's, it's more about the an attempt to imagine and describe in a, a fictionalized world a transition to a what I call a sufficiency economy, which is this idea of one planet living where everybody can live at a material living standard that is enough to <coughs> allow them to live well and healthily without degrading the biosphere, which we all rely on. So in 2013, I, I, I wrote this book called Entropia Life Beyond Industrial Civilization, in which I um, told the story of a community that um, became isolated from the rest of civilization when the Great Disruption hit, and uh, it had to essentially deal with, you know, no longer being connected to a global economy and having to quite quickly and establish a, a highly self-sufficient, localized economy, um, and to think through how they did that in a kind of a context of, if not collapse, at least fast deterioration, which strikes me as a plausible future, whether it happens in <coughs> a year or 10 years or 100 years, industrial civilization as we know it doesn't have a future beyond that. I think it is in the process of deteriorating as we, as we speak, even yeah. as lovely as life seems around us as we speak. Mm. Um, and I tried to describe in various ways from economic perspectives, from cultural perspectives, from political perspectives and spiritual perspectives, how this new way of life emerged, what it looked like, and why this community was flourishing despite being um, of radically reduced energy and resource demands. And on the last page of this book, I have a note saying, 
if anybody wants to be in touch with me and try to build something based on the ideas and utopian ambitions of this book, be in touch. And I sincerely put that in there without expecting anybody to be in touch with me. And yet two weeks after the book was published, I got an email from a, from a guy who had 20 acres um, out in Gippsland and oh, wow. some money, yeah. limited money to kind of get things underway. And over the last three years, we've been building a kind of a demonstration project. Um, we call it Warakan. Warakan. Warak is the local indigenous term meaning both earth and story. Khan is the Mayan term for seed. So we created this term to signify our attempt to seed a new earth story. Yeah. And it's small, but it's interesting. And I've, it's been an incredibly enriching few years where we've been building earth ships, mud houses, earth bag houses, tiny houses, tiny harnesses on wheels, expanding organic gardens, building rocket stoves, putting up a yurt, cooking over solar ovens, experimenting with alternative technologies, engaging with local community, working toward local economy. And it's also had challenges, like nothing is more challenging than living in community as the community and any community has discovered, you know. Every eco-village, every share house, and now <laughs> yes. our project, you know, human beings, yeah. we're not born good community members, and the art of living well in community is no longer taught in our society. Mm. You know, it's just too easy to hide, hide back in your house and not deal with conflict, whereas when you live in community and want to live wisely in community, it's not so much about trying to avoid conflict, which is impossible, it's dealing well with conflict when it inevitably arises and it's one of the many lessons that we've learned. So the property out in Gippsland is, we use the term demonstration site more than eco-village, although in a sense it's a small eco-village. Um, what the future holds out there remains to be seen. It's been a fascinating journey so far. It's still going on. Um, People are living there at the moment. Yeah. yeah. And a couple of, couple of couple of stories yeah, sure. about it. Yeah. The first is that it's been, so the documentary that I mentioned has been based on the evolution of this property. Okay. So if people do want to check it out, it's available on YouTube for free. Well, I'll, I'll get you to send me all the links to all the sure. stuff we're talking yeah, about. Yeah. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, yeah. But, you know, Occupy as a form of ac activism was, was fun in some respects, but also very challenging because there I was linked arms with people facing off against police. Now, that's not my normal state. It's not something I like doing, but I felt kind of duty-bound to do it. And it was incredibly uncomfortable because I, I'm not of a nature that naturally kind of is in conflict with a police officer. Yeah. You know, it's just not who I am. And yet I was doing it for, I was, I was doing it for, because I thought it was right. You know, I was, I was there in peaceful protest, of course. Um, there was no aggression on my part, but I found myself being in conflict with a police officer. My point is that forms of activism can be heavy and hard. And, you know, I've been engaged with a local transition group, and I found that quite hard because I was putting huge amounts of effort into organising things and not getting a huge amount of uptake. And, you know, when you spend a lot of time organising an event and three people turn up, 
whoever turns up are the right people, we always used to say, <laughs> to, to, to reframe it in a positive way. But yeah. when, you're try, when you have big, greater ambitions, it can be very heavy on the soul mm. to be putting all this effort and not being convinced that your efforts are having, getting much leverage. Out in this demonstration project, although there have been a hell of a lot of hard work and some really difficult times, it's been incredibly nourishing. It has not really been a chore. Mm. It's and it's and it, it, I guess to put it into a, a a short summary, like it made me believe that the revolution that's needed can be joyful, which is an incredible realization, a lived experience that these activities of relearning the skills of self-sufficiency, building with mud, learning, you know, how to craft with wood, how to weave with flax, how to grow your own food, to experiment with alternative technologies, to socialize with all of these wonderful, creative, interesting people in the evenings. It's enriched my life. It hasn't been hard. I haven't had to, oh, I'm out there trying to do good again. It's This is difficult. It's like <laughs> yeah. fun and interesting and I'm learning. So, and you know, it's just to think how many hours uh, just disappear into Facebook and um, TVs and computers these days. Like these years and years of community labor is just disappearing into essentially meaningless distraction. And, you know, given how much needs to be done in a very short time, we need to find ways to provoke people to, to leave their computers and their TVs and to engage with the community. And I'm convinced, and this is a source of grounded hope for me, that that engagement will be infinitely more enriching than watching the latest episode of the Big, Big Bang Theory or The yeah. Biggest Loser or the latest iteration of Survivor or Big Brother. You know, <laughs> yeah. That distracts you. It doesn't fulfill you. No, yeah. Whereas community engagement, learning new skills can and can be incredibly fun and fulfilling and meaningful. Um, the second story linked to that uh, is to do with housing, a particularly touchy subject for us Melbournians, knowing that you know it now costs seven or eight hundred grand to buy a crappy old villa in the suburbs. And out at Warakan, the Gippsland demonstration project, we've built six or seven, eight tiny houses. Um, and one of them, the earth, the earth house, the mud house that we built, 25 of us went out there for a, a working bee. In six days, we had built the walls and then the roof got put on two weeks later once the mud had dried in two or three days. It cost about $5,000 for this beautiful mud house that, you know, from an energy perspective, amazing because it kind of kept heat out. On the, in the hot days and kept heat in in the warm days. It's just the way earth buildings work. Mm. It cost $5,000, built 90% from the soil beneath our feet, the clay beneath our feet. And it struck me at the time as there were 25 of us sitting there jumping up and down on the cob, which is the mixture of clay, sand, straw and water, which makes a, the substance of an earth building. Mm. It struck me that if the 25 of us had stayed there for a year and worked for a week and had a week off, we could have all had one of these beautiful natural abodes for $5,000 and been mortgage-free. Now, wow. just think through the oh. significance of a 
on a person's life of being liberated from oh. what, 40 years of labour, mm. paying for a crappy old house in the burbs. Now, that ought to shake us awake. Yeah. That ought to remind us that we haven't figured out how to live well on the land yet. Yeah. You know, there may be inconveniences that, that come with living in a small mud house. But 40 years of labour working in a job you don't like to pay for a house that is made of unsustainable materials and is destroying the planet and also locking you into a lifestyle that you may not find meaningful or fulfilling. Like, that is an inconvenience. It is. And linking back to the revolution might be joyful point, it was an one, all of the working bees out there have been the best weeks of my life where 25 strangers come together with some, usually with one or two experts to, to guide the process of construction. And we've learnt, we've built, we've been intimately involved in the building of a beautiful, sustainable house, despite being unskilled labour. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, I haven't built, aside from the, from the shed that I've talked about, which itself came from no experience. Yeah. To go out there and to be intimately involved as a builder in these beautiful abodes, it's striking. You know, we're told in this market society where the division of labour is almost at its extreme that we can we can do our one job, but otherwise we buy people's labour mm. to do things like fix a gutter or fix the tap or paint the house or so on and so forth. And we find ourselves more and more becoming less and less skilled. Yeah. And I think we're at this interesting generational turning point where our grandparents had these skills. Our parents had a few of them. We have almost none of them. And our grandparents are old. And there's this resource, an untapped resource in their ways of doing things that we shouldn't let disappear. Otherwise, we're going to have to reinvent the wheel. So it's, there is so much win-win to be gained from community engagement, from, you know, like so many people today, including me, are disconnected from the elderly. You know, like I just don't engage that often with people who are 60 or 70 or 80 or 90. And I think both me and them are worse off for that. You know, we can enrich each other's lives if there was social structures that made that easier. And there's so much to learn about self-sufficiency and those skills of self-sufficiency that that generation know and that is about to leave our culture if we don't pick that. And, you know, I think there are subcultures bubbling under the surface right now that are beginning to realise this and you know the Transition Town movement is one of them. What um, was that, the Transition, transition Town? Transition Town yeah. movement um, and other kind of localization movements that are trying to produce locally food in particular. Yeah. <coughs> where you know even mending jeans or you know using a sewing machine you know it was it used to be a relatively common practice in households 50 or 60 years ago, and now not so much, very rarely, because it's just too cheap to go to Target and get a $9 t-shirt or like, how possibly could that be a just price <laughs> for a t-shirt? You know, yeah. It's so much for 
good economy, like that's warped economy. You know, there are so many externalities that aren't being included in that price. Yeah. And it's no wonder we are over-consuming when the price of our commodities are so grossly underpriced. Yeah. In a funny sort of way that kind of calls for a new materialism, strangely, in the sense that we've sort of become so wealthy from a material perspective that we actually don't respect material things. So in a, in a way, yes, we are too materialistic, but in another way, we're not materialistic enough. We don't care and respect stuff in a way, you know. It's too easy to leave a tool outside or just replace the T-shirt when it's got a minor tear in it. You know, there is honour in mending that. You know, you're weaving some of yourself into that T-shirt. And that's the aesthetic that I was talking about. Like, there's no shame. There yeah. is honour yes. in walking around with <laughs> a mended pair of jeans. Yeah. You know, you've left me with a, a number of things that I'm going to do after this conversation. One of them is I'm going to spend some time with my mum learning how to sew and repair my own stuff. <laughs> I want to come down and do a working bee yeah. <laughs> next time there's one. I had an experience at a permaculture farm last year and one of the things that struck me was about why we have this unconscious materialism, if you like, or um, uh, blasé materialism in a way. But there's, there seems to be this, we, we, we don't see where the stuff comes from or where it goes. There's such a disconnection. Like all we see it is in the shop and in the bin. Like that's our very limited understanding of the life cycle mm -hmm. of the thing. So living on the permaculture farm, they, like they didn't have a bin. So anything plastic that came on kind of had to stay there as well. But, you know, everything else was sort of composted or mm -hmm. reused in some capacity. Mm -hmm. and things, they, they ate from the land and they gave back to the land mm -hmm. as well. And so seeing very starkly the small amount of plastic that was on there, which wasn't that much, but, you know, they had it in containers mm. uh, of rubbish, was, <laughs> was quite jarring and made me conscious of, much more conscious of the, the plastic that I bought onto mm. that place mm. and what actually then ended up happening with, happening with it mm. as well. Mm. Yeah. I've sort of, over the years, you know, when I first started thinking about the environmental predicament, I was appalled at the waste stream that even me, a conscious consumer, was producing. And <clears throat> over the years, we've reduced our bin, like our, our landfill waste, to, you know, a small bag every fortnight, which is still problematic, but, you know, a fraction of our, you know, typical Aussies waste stream. But I've now become appalled at how much I've recycled. Because, you know, that's still an energy-intensive process. And, you know, <clears throat> I would like to now think of ways to reduce the amount we re recycle. You know, a glass bottle, it doesn't strike me as a, a good, sustainable society that we drink out of a glass bottle, put it in the recycling bin, it gets driven away, melted down, and turned into a new bottle. It's better than putting it straight into the, the, the landfill, but a far wiser, ecologically sensible process would be to create 
systems where that bottle is reused, not recycled. Yeah. And that should be, I think, the challenge, having gone through that first phase of environmentalism, recognising that we can't continue with our ordinary waste streams to recycle as much as we can, but now to recognise that that was good but insufficient and that we need to kind of radicalise our practices, push the boundaries of ecological practice further into kind of, as they say, first refuse, then reuse, then recycle. Refuse, I like that. Yeah, yeah. it's like, do I need that? Yeah. My, one of my favourite anecdotes from the Greek cynic Diogenes, who I, my last book was on Diogenes, and he was perhaps one of the more radical practitioners of simple living in history. He essentially chose poverty. He lived in a bathtub, is that? He lived okay. in a, they call it a tub, or a, it was a big ceramic jar, I think, that okay. they used to keep grains in, and it was, okay. his, it was his house. And aside from that, he, he owned a rags and a staff and a lantern and a, a bowl, a cup that he would try to beg from or drink out of the river with. And he was in, having a conversation with a young boy one day and the boy had to run off home. And as he was leaving, the boy dipped his hands in the river and drank from his hands. And Diogenes was appalled that he's been carrying around this bowl all his life, drinking out of the river, and he didn't even need to, and he threw it away in disgust. And, yeah, less can be more. Yeah. It's important to, we, we, yeah, we, we need less than we think we do because, you know, we live in a culture where we're bombarded literally thousands of times every day with advertisements and more subtle cultural and institutional messages telling us that we have insufficient stuff. Our lives are inadequate as they are. You need this product mm. to be loved, respected, satisfied, happy, to live a meaningful existence. And when you're immersed in that culture, it's no wonder that people are dissatisfied with their material living standard, no matter how much they have. And when you get the higher paying job and get you lift yourself up the next rung or two of the social ladder, you find yourself, your expectations having risen, equally dissatisfied. The carrot has moved further into the distance and you find yourself needing more still, you know. So I think, again, that idea of prefigurative action to try to be part of a cultural shift that resists that assumption that more is better, to try to live, experiment with, alternative ways that explore the question of how much is enough, mm. to try to understand in your own context what is sufficient. And the more people who do that and connect as they do it through local community action, I think that strikes me as the most coherent transitional theory of change. Yeah. You know, it is utterly implausible, I think, to expect our governments to solve this problem. The burden is on us yeah. to be, to get active at the grassroots, to drive change from below and practice politics in that way. It's a different conception of politics. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's not being naive about the importance of systemic change. In fact, I think it's being politically intelligent recognizing that it's no good banging on about the importance of 
legal changes or infrastructure change that we today have little agency over. <coughs> it's about recognising that systemic challenge, thinking through how that system change can come about and then seeing that our contribution today must be a personal household community contribution and over time as the subculture grows, as the culture shift broadens, deepens, radicalises, as the groups, organisers come together, these constellation of social movements come together somehow in a way that is as yet unimagined, that will filter up and change the system in ways that needs to be, because there's no doubt that the current system locks us in many ways, into ways of living that firstly we find dissatisfying, but are also grossly unsustainable. So yeah. the systemic change is, is necessary um, to basically make simple living easier. Yeah. Sort of, that's the, the goal of the systemic change that I think about and work towards. Yeah. Got a couple of questions for you as we wrap up. You've kind of answered these, but maybe you can think of um, different answers. <laughs> um, the first one is about, I guess, a, something you'd like to suddenly disrupt that you're not currently part of disrupting. Um, you know, something or maybe you daydream about being part of outside of the, the way you're working and living at the moment. Is there something that comes to mind when I talk about that? Uh, you put me on the spot. Look, I'll slightly duck and evade that difficult question sure. <laughs> and um, say, like, I'm often asked when I speak publicly, what should I do? You know, and I don't know whether it's the influence of American culture on, on Australian culture, but people sometimes seem to expect an eight-point bullet plan yeah. you know, to change your life. And the fact is that there is no eight-point bullet plan. And if there was, it would be so vague that it would require personal interpretation anyway. Yeah. So the changes needed, as I've said throughout, aren't, we're not talking about tweaking. We're not talking about incremental, tiny reforms of an otherwise coherent, sustainable system or culture. For better or for worse, like there's no prizes for being most radical. I'm not saying anything like this to be to distinguish my position it's in my view an honest and frank look at the state of things and it bothers me to say but i think they're worse than most people appreciate when you take when you look at the science on climate on deforestation on the erosion of topsoils on culture on the Overconsumption of non-renewable resources, the, you know, you name it. You look at an environmental metric, it's not looking good. From a social justice perspective, the richest eight men now own more than the poorest half of humanity. I can't even digest that statistic. It is so grossly unjust that it makes me wonder why we're not in revolution immediately the moment that's published and known about. The point is that there aren't eight things to be doing. It is a 10,000 point bullet plan, and each of which require personal creative application to our own lives and our own context and our own ways. You know, returning to Diogenes, his, his, when he consulted the oracle at Delphi, the riddle that she gave him was deface the currency. 
Now, he was exiled from his hometown for defacing the currency, the, the coins. Um, and then he, when he um, received this message from the oracle, he and since there were always riddles, he assumed that he, she couldn't have been saying, continue defacing the coinage. And he interpreted it as meaning defacing the coin of custom, you know, to provoke people to rethink conventional understandings of wealth. And I guess that's the challenge that I continually ask myself mm. and try to practice, but also try to provoke thought in other people through my, my writing is to make them rethink conventional understandings of wealth and to provoke uh, an exploration and an experimentation with ways of living that seek the good life in non-materialistic ways. Because yeah. that's the, the good stuff of life. Yeah. We all know it, um, <laughs> but we struggle to practice it because culture doesn't want it. There's no money in enjoying a cup of tea in the backyard. You know, we haven't spent I've, en I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, but we haven't spent a cent. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's not good for the growth economy. Yeah. Isn't, that should worry us. You know, <laughs> that the economy out there doesn't want us doing what we're just doing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I like that. The final question is about, it's more of a personal reflection and about um, a small change in your life that's had important impact on who you are and what you're doing or it's had a large impact in the direction of your life or maybe it sustained you in some way now and would be interesting for other people to hear about? Hmm. One answer would be the, the gardening thing, but I won't, I won't repeat that, although that has, as I've said, multiple benefits from financial health and um, kind of connection with nature perspectives. The, the other most, I think, significant decision I made, which changed my life for the better, and it took some courage, I think I, I'm okay saying that, and that was when I had finished my master's in law in New Zealand. I practiced employment law for 18 months in Christchurch. And then after six months of that, I a pay review came up and rather than asking for a pay review, I asked my boss whether I could stay on the same wages but have a day less working yeah. each week. And he, um, he was a bit confused because this had never been put to him before. Yeah. And he sort of said, so I don't have to pay you more despite seeming, you know, having this contractual right to a, re a review. And he eventually said yes and as I was leaving, he said, hang on, I've just given you a 20% pay rise. Nobody's ever had a 20% pay rise. <laughs> well, pay rise in the sense of pro rata pay yeah. rise. Um, same wages, now working 20% less. And that was my, in, in retrospect, my first significant act of downshifting, if you will, you know, an exchange of material wealth for freedom. And I think there is vast scope for people exploiting that same practice that same dynamic um, one of aside from Walden one of my favorite essays of all time is by William Morris the Victorian um, who wrote an essay called um, useful labor versus useless toil 
it's freely available online and to do injustice to a beautiful essay, but to try to summarize it, one of his key points was that he was trying to remind people that everything we consume, we essentially have to work to earn the money to purchase it. And the insight that he was trying to get people to appreciate was that if therefore we minimize our consumption, we therefore minimize our obligation to earn the money to pay for that. So there's this deep double dividend again by rethinking our consumption practices. At first instinct, in our culture, people assume that it must mean hardship, that you're somehow doing without, that you're poorer. Mm. I would beg to differ and say that for almost everyone, not everyone, I know there are people even in affluent societies that are generally struggling, but there's a vast amount of our society in Western society more generally, and including you know, parts beyond the West and the global consumer class more broadly, who, if they rethought their consumption practices, could significantly reduce their consumption in ways that didn't impact negatively on their quality of life, but also liberated them from labor that they often won't find meaningful. You know, the fact is that capitalism, global capitalism, has created a system whereby a lot of people go to jobs for 40 hours a week and don't find it very meaningful or fulfilling. So we should be, out of self-respect, to take our own lives seriously. We should be saying, are there ways to live differently? Are there ways to maximize our own freedom? And I think voluntary simplicity living as simply as possible in a material sense is the most direct path to maximizing freedom in a strange counterintuitive way. Mm. So I think if we're coming to the end, that would be the, the closing note, the challenge to listeners to, in their own context, think about where their money is going and on what. Do the math. See if you can live with less. And soon enough, you'll discover this deep, beautiful silver lining, and that is called freedom. <laughs> Sam, that's such a good night to finish on. It's been <laughs> awesome chatting with you. Thanks for sharing about a lot of stuff and being generous and allowing us to sit in your back out. My pleasure. Good to talk. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I have a question for you. Do you think you would find richer, deeper, and more connected ways of flourishing by living with much less? If you feel like sharing your thoughts on this or anything else about the conversation I had with Samuel, you can do so by posting something on the Facebook page, through Twitter or Instagram, or even by sending me an email, adam at subtledisruptors.com. And of course, let me know if there are subtle disruptors you think I should know about. Coming up next week, I'll be talking with Dr. Time about acknowledging and challenging our metaphors and conception of time. I'm Adam Murray, and I hope you feel a little more encouraged, connected, and resolute your own quest to subtle disruption. Bye for now.